Well, if you're a big radio freak like me, or if you're a big craft beer connoisseur, you won't want to miss a minute of this week's Blabbit in the Bluegrass. And we're going to start with a Henderson native who made a big name for himself over the radio waves on Henderson-Evansville area stations such as WKDQ, WYNG, among others. His name is Sam Yates, and Sam is currently enjoying retirement down in Georgia, but before he retired, he had a very successful career in broadcasting, interviewed countless celebrities, and he is just chock full of stories. We have split my conversation with Sam into two weeks, so you'll hear part one this week and part two next week. Even if you have not had the pleasure of hearing Sam and his work, I know that you'll thoroughly enjoy hearing his story and his journey through the world of broadcasting, and there's a lot to be learned there for all of you aspiring broadcasters and podcasters out there, so you'll definitely want to hang around for that. And after we speak with Sam, we will swing over to Louisville and hear about uh, the Derby City's very own Against the Grain Brewery. Owner Adam Watson will enlighten us on his unique selection of craft beers as well as his smokehouse located inside Louisville Slugger Field, also the public house and the upcoming Sandwich Emporium which is in the works. We've got an action-packed show, so let's not tarry. It's episode 15 of season two, Blabbit in the Bluegrass, coming at you now. Kentucky features so much more than basketball and horses. We're home to scenic spectacles and one-of-a-kind golf courses. If boating, fishing, dining, or music is your pleasure, we'll guide you to the sights and sounds that you will truly treasure. Cause we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide, cause we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey cools your palate. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste. From Diamond in Webster County to Stone in Pike County, we've got you covered on Blabbit in the Bluegrass exploration and celebration of all things Kentucky. I'm Sam Moore, as always, here at the often imitated but never duplicated North Quell Motel in gorgeous Henderson KY. So thrilled that you're here. Anytime that I get to speak of or speak with one of my fellow Hendersonians, my heart always swells with pride. And that's what we're going to do today with my fellow Sam, Sam Yates, who enjoyed a very successful broadcasting career and hosted several morning shows on prominent stations in the Henderson-Evansville area. You would not believe the people that uh, Sam has hobnobbed with in the celebrity world, the artists that he has introduced on stage at concerts. He is just full of wit and charm and entertainment, as you will hear. Part one of my chat with Sam is coming up this week. Part two will be headed your way next week. And even if you're not familiar with Sam and his voice. Well, you might have heard it, and maybe you don't know it, because he's done voice work on commercials that have been aired on countless uh, stations in multiple markets. So he is just full of experience and wisdom, and we're going to find out all that he has to say coming up here, and you will not want to 
change that dial. Not that there are too many dials left these days. But anyway, keep it right where you got it. Because after we talk to Sam, we're going to hear about Against the Grain Brewery. I first discovered them on a list that I saw of uh, the top 10 breweries in the state of Kentucky. And uh, I thought right then that it was definitely worth my time and effort to track somebody down. And I was lucky enough to track the owner down, Adam Watson. And he's going to tell us all about their craft beer specialties as well as their uh, food selection at the Smokehouse and the Public House and the uh, Sandwich Emporium, which is in the works and should be opened momentarily. But against the grain is definitely the talk of the Louisville town and beyond. So we'll find out why in no time flat. Fun show. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I no doubt will. And a reminder that if you have questions, comments, suggestions for future directions of the show, we've added a new feature of late with our exceptional educator that we do about once every two or three weeks where we spotlight a teacher making a difference in the classroom on top of the... uh, state parks, local businesses, restaurants, and musicians that we like to do around here already. And the possibilities are endless. I am open-minded, and I don't bite. Shoot me an email. It's bluegrassblabbing at gmail.com, B-L-U-E-G-R-A-S-S-B-L-A-B-B-I-N at gmail.com. I'm also at your service via the Blabbit in the Bluegrass Facebook page. All you got to do is uh, type Blabbit in the Bluegrass in the Facebook search. It'll take you right to me. Make sure you like and follow the page. All of my previous episodes are waiting right there for you. You can also stay up to date with additional information as it is presented. Make comments, leave messages. You know the drill. I love hearing from you, whether it's through Facebook or email. I very, very much value what you have to say, okay? Now, before we stroll on down to the Georgia coast and chat with my friend Sam Yates, I have for you yet another bluegrass brain buster. We strive to do one of these each and every week, and I will let you ponder it while we listen to our guests, Sam Yates and Adam Watson, and I will reveal the answer in the show's final segment. So, our theme this week is swimsuits, and here is your bluegrass brain buster. The swimsuit that Mark Spitz wore in the 1972 Olympics was produced with love right here in Kentucky. My question to you is, in which Commonwealth community was Mark Spitz's 1972 Olympic swimsuit manufactured? Again, in 1972, Mark Spitz, the swimsuit that he wore in the Olympics that year, was produced with love Right here in Kentucky, I want to know in which Commonwealth community was Mark Spitz's 1972 Olympic swimsuit manufactured. It's getting almost swim season. The weather's warming up. I know a lot of you are dying to dive into the pool, but in the meantime, you figure this one out, and I will have your answer at the conclusion of today's show. Good luck. Sam Moore proudly presents his Commonwealth Crowd Pleaser. Well, today, guys and gals, we are quite privileged to be joined by a longtime Henderson Evansville radio veteran. You might remember him from his many days on KDQ. You might remember him from his days on WYNG, among a few other stops in between there. And he is now 
here to join us, and uh, he's going to talk about his experiences in broadcasting. There were plenty of them, to say the least. And then he's going to talk to us about his brand new archive page. So all of you that are fans like I am can go and hear some of his treasured clips of interviews and air checks, all that fun stuff. So let's hear it. Fresh off the beach in Darien, Georgia, it's none other than Sam Yates. With you, man. I pre appreciate you letting me be on this uh, this shindig of yours. Right? You know? Well, I I appreciate it. It's uh, the Sam and Sam show. That would have made a good morning show back in the day. Well, you know, you were talking about when you introduced me, you said he was uh, his days at this station and his days at that station. Actually, boy, you hit the nail on the head. Days. <laughs> they could only tolerate me for like a few days, and then they kicked me on to another station. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. They, they, were all, they were all great people. Yes, indeed. I believe it. Now, I'm having sudden flashbacks all of a sudden to the time that um, I was about six years old, and the morning show on KDQ was you – and none other than Stan Clark. Oh, yes. Yeah. My soap opera buddy. <laughs> Your soap opera buddy. Oh, uh, yeah. We, uh, we went to New York and appeared in an episode of, uh, what was it, Guiding Light. Uh, that thing that was on CBS, you know, from 1912 until they, they ended up canceling it, I think, about 10 years ago or whatever. Oh, I gotcha. So you went up there. He and played uh... a doctor. Stan Clark played a doctor. Oh, uh, that's so, not miscasting. I don't know what is, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there is a little bit of ir irony there. It seems like. Yeah, and I was I was his patient. And you were the patient. So, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't have to tell you what the outcome of that episode was. I, oh I gosh, I no, can. I, didn't. No. <laughs> I can only imagine. But uh, I've not heard Stan Clark's voice in quite a while. Do you know anything about Stan's whereabouts? I I haven't heard uh, from Stan or heard anything about Stan for the longest time, but uh, you know he was one of those one of those voices that I grew up listening to. I used to listen to him when he was on AM uh, thirteen thirty WJPS back in the seventies, oh. and uh, it never occurred to me that uh, you know I'd be working with him. But the, but the same can be said for a whole lot of other people. You know, I I, I never thought uh, there there were many many broadcasters that I grew up listening to. I never thought I'd meet them, let alone you know work with them and be welcomed as part of the broadcasting fraternity. You know? Yes, exactly. The, <laughs> Funny, that was the great thing about being in the business. Funny how the wide world of radio works. Now uh, you've been retired from the local radio scene since 2008 when you last were at uh, WKDQ doing afternoons. WKDQ. Right. So, why don't you enlighten our listeners on what you've been up to since you retired from full-time radio, Sam? Yeah, I, I, got, I was very active in uh, commercial voiceovers. I had my own studio, and uh, I had that going for about 15 years. I was in about 70 markets across the country. Still heard in Evansville on local stations there. But after about 15 years, I just, you know, I, I was ready to just kind of... Um, move on because I had a lot of new things enter my life. One, one in particular, uh, a little, a little baby grand girl named Presley. Oh, three, three years old, uh, June 20th. I have, I have other older grands, but, uh, you know, she, she occupies a huge chunk. Oh, I can imagine. And, <laughs> and, you know, going to the beach and doing all the coastal fun stuff, it just, um, 
I, w- I was just ready to, I had my run 45 years total and, um, radio, television, ad agency work, voiceover studio. It was fun, but all, all things come to an end eventually, Sam. One of these, one of these days, it's going to be a long time from now, but you, you'll, <laughs> you, you will find that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sooner or later, they all tell me that time some, will come. Some of us find it sooner than later, <laughs> but, but thankfully I was one of the, one of the ones that found it later. So. And uh, when when the salt and the salt water and the sand come calling, they call loudly. So I've been told. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I I never thought I would be uh, a beach enthusiast or an ocean enthusiast or any of that stuff. But uh, when you when you move down here, you just you you become that. It just it just happens. So now it's a good um, place to be. Growing up, if you're anything like I was when I was a child, you listened to seemingly endless amounts of radio. So talk to me a little bit about uh, the local radio stations and personalities that you listen to most of all as a, a young pup. WSON uh, in, in Henderson was the station that everybody who lived in Henderson would listen to, to hear the school closings and the local news and so forth. If you right. want a top 40 uh, radio. You listen to WJPS at uh, thirteen thirty a.m. and uh, that that was until this thing called the River City Rocker twelve eighty WGBF came along. Yeah. And in one in one book, see they they were an old station that played old radio shows, you know. And then they then some new guys came in and turned it into a rocker. And I, in six months, that thing skyrocketed and blew just about everybody else off the road. But I used to listen to JPS, guys like Jim Stagg and the real Rodney Russell and uh, a bunch of Dave Wood and a bunch of others. And these guys would become friends of mine later on. It never occurred to me that I would get to, you know, meet any of them, let alone work with any of them, let alone being accepted as part of the (laughs) broadcasting fraternity. And then years later... When I became a success, these guys would come up to me and say, hey, don't forget to talk about me on your show tomorrow, okay? So <laughs> yeah, give me a mention. <laughs> one day, you're a kid going to school listening to these guys, and then, you know, the next day, they're coming to you saying, hey, when are you going to have me on your show? So it, that's that's how my life has been. So it's uh, been people who, you know, you, you – this is a word that offends people, but I'm going to use it anyway. People you idolize – and then hey, it's a word then I one use. day you you get to you you get to be their their friend and colleague and get together and have a good time and have fun and tell stupid jokes and all that kind of thing, you know. Sure. Oh yeah, that's that's what it's all about. <laughs> Conversation and cutting up. Now uh, speaking of JPS, the uh, the late David Moore told me one time that um WJPS one time uh, caught on fire, and all he heard on WJPS for about 24 hours or so was Burning Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Do you remember that? That's, that's exactly <laughs> right. And um, they were they were known for doing those kind of things. <laughs> they did those kind of things. And back then, Sam, back then people didn't do that kind of stuff. There was no, no zaniness or craziness on radio back then. So when things like that happen, uh, I mean, it turned the, the, the tri-state upside down. There was one other time when Jim Stagg 
the late Jim Stagg, also known as Jerry Smith, he he played the song Wedding Bell Blues by the Fifth Dimension seven times in a row. Oh, my gosh. And, and got fired. <laughs> Not really, but they they put it across that way. <laughs> and that was another publicity stunt. But see, back then, that's the kind of stuff they did. You know, today, the stuff that you hear on morning radio is... I'm, Stuff that I'm not old enough to hear, you know? Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> the, the country today is nothing like the country back in the 80s and 90s, back when. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, no. I, I really, honestly, I, I can't listen to any of that stuff that's out there today. The best, the best stuff was, well, the geezer country, 50s and 60s, stuff my dad liked. And then the 70s, and then when the 80s, Alabama came along and Hank Jr., and they all you know, expanded that audience and got it younger and younger and younger. And at the time that that was happening, that's when WYNG, the new country station, was starting to make to, to make some, some moves. And sure. in no time at all, it uh, just, just exploded. Plus, we did Sam Yates and the Morning Crew, which was about as crazy a morning show for a country station at that time as <laughs> you could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> what they thought was crazy turned out to be brilliant. <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, we made fun of local, local media personalities, local politicians. Oh, that's uh, that. That's fun. That's awesome. <laughs> mayors Mac, uh, Vandiver and Ed McDonald. Uh, they were frequent targets of uh, of my my mind. And, <laughs> sure. And two, those two guys couldn't have loved it. They couldn't have loved it even more. Vanderveer got up on a billboard with me one morning when it was 39 degrees, and and he he played along and McDonald played along. But How about see, that? That's, that's another thing. Politicians and local media celebrities they didn't they didn't have that kind of stuff to put up with back in the in the old days. And when we came along in the 80s, uh, we did we did a show that. Nobody else was doing it. Nobody else would want to do it. They said, that guy is going to get himself fired. <laughs> and instead, we shot up to, oh, I think we went from the seventh station in the market to the number two station. Seven to two. That's quite a job. <laughs> in no time. And then over to KDQ years later and became number one. And I think that's the first. that was the first time in that station's history that it was number one in the market. How about that? And, so. <laughs> uh, Sam and Stan were the ones who, I mean, every morning people would call and say, you guys are going to get fired if you don't start. I can't believe you're doing that stuff. <laughs> it was the greatest thing I ever heard. I never got sick of hearing it. I about drove off the road when I heard you do that song parody about, you know, whatever. You know. Well. So um, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I, and I had great sidekicks to work with, too. Sure, that that makes it all worth it. Now, when when did it first hit you that radio was your calling and that was what you wanted to do? Well, you know, television was really the thing that that got my attention first. I used to watch all the old uh, quiz show hosts, game show hosts, people, people like Bob Barker and Gene Rayburn and Alan Ludden, and I just went, you know, gaga over those guys. Sure. And television was my first love. But when I became you know, a preteen and then a teen, I kind of turned away from the TV and started, you know, listening to radio. But my first my first job in broadcasting was actually a television job. Oh, gotcha. I did uh, news 
not at sports. Sports and weather on uh, the Henderson local local origination cable channel. I think we had an audience of about six total. <laughs> There's still an because access. Back in those days, cable, you could only get cable in the city. You couldn't go past the city limits and, and get cable TV back in those days. In 1975, people were jumping up and down, excited that they could pick up, in addition to the local stations, hey, Helen, we can see Paducah and Louisville, too. Woo! And I mean, and I mean that was... That was a big deal. There was no WGN Chicago or Superstation TBS or any of that stuff. That, the wow. rest of that stuff wouldn't come along for another, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so. But uh, at age 17, I put on a you know sports coat and a tie, and I sit in an anchor desk next to uh, uh, Virginia Newman, who was the wife of the then mayor, uh, Bill Newman in the city of Henderson. She was the okay. news anchor, and then I was the sports and weather guy. And I, I basically was there for comic relief, and sure. it, and it worked. And then radio came came along shortly thereafter. So right, uh, t- TV was where it all started. So you got the <laughs> you got a taste of both worlds first in TV. Oh, and- oh, <laughs> oh man, it was it was fun. I had another show in addition to that that I was. Uh, in charge of producing, uh, not just hosting, which was a sports interview show. And um, the first guest that I got to have on that show, oh my gosh, um, was Jerry Kramer, who used to be the the, uh, pro linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. He was in, I think he was in the first five Super Bowls. Oh, yeah, uh, I knew that. Guy, I knew that name sounded familiar. He was as big as a barn, you know? <laughs> yeah. But he came to town to, to speak at a YM, uh, YMCA banquet, and they were just right across the street from the television station. So uh, they said, come on over and talk to this guy. Come on over and talk to him. I didn't know anything about football. I didn't know what to ask him, but he helped me through the through the whole thing. And, I mean, he he was huge. And he played under Vince Lombardi. And One of the man, best. Uh, it don't get any better. I mean, no. he played under the guy that the Super Bowl trophy is named after. So, and played with Bart Starr and all the rest of those guys. But uh, anyway, that was fun. Mom told me she remembered you too from your days in the booth at uh, Doc Holliday's, which is now Rook. Absolutely. See, that all came from uh, a guy who worked at my first radio station job. Uh, which was WHKC, which is now WQBFFM. But see, the original owner of that station, this is the craziest thing you, you'll ever hear. The original owner of 103.1 FM was my next door neighbor. How about that? He, his kids, his kid, uh, the, the kids that I grew up playing with were his kids. And when I got into radio, that, that was the first station that I worked at. It was by then. But uh, from from that, I got into uh, club DJ work because there was a guy who worked at the station who said, "I'm I'm getting ready to go down south. I need somebody to you know run run this club." And I, I was underage. I I was not legal to you know to be in this establishment. But he said, "Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it." So they did. And then I guess well, about six years, I did. Uh, club DJ work, including Doc Holliday's. Right. And uh, that <laughs> that was a place that gave uh, their main competition 
across the river, Funkies and a couple of those other clubs, boy, we gave them a lot of heartburn and heartache because on Friday and Saturday nights, <laughs> we packed that place way, 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 three, four times over the fire marshal uh, legal limit. Oh, so, how about that? <laughs> That's something to be proud of. Yep. That's, uh, yep. <laughs> folks across the and, river. Uh, most importantly, though, Sam, that's where I met the lady who would be my wife of now four, going on 41 years. Oh, Tracy. And uh, met met Tracy at Doc Holiday Saloon. And then uh, we got married. And then shortly thereafter, we had our first, uh, first son, our only son. And yeah. now he's getting ready to turn 35. And he is the last man standing in a home full of girls. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I I love to write write him about that every day, but uh, yeah, he he turned out turned out pretty well. Yeah, and he's uh, produced some mighty fine daughters. It sounds like so. That's, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> that's good to hear. Now tell me, Sam, about some of the personal connections and uh, mentors who helped you to become acclimated to the world of radio in your early days. All those guys that I mentioned earlier, the ones I grew up listening to, um, there's a fellow who owned WKDQ long ago, long before it became the country station, a man by the name of Henry Lackey. And, uh, oh, I remember family, him well. His family, uh, family owned uh, that station and WSON. And at one time, I think they owned WEHT, which was Channel 50, when it signed on back in 1953 but but that voice of his you know oh my gosh my mother took me over to the home team of station and and you know he um <laughs> now he he looks upon me as well as that guy that made made a living making fun of my voice you know <laughs> but uh, he, he and i have uh, hooked up recently and uh, it was that was wonderful to, to have happen yes indeed so you <laughs> you worked um with Henry back when uh, SON owned, or uh, Henry owned KDQ, I should say, along with SON. And he sold KDQ back, I think it was 87, 88? Somewhere around there. I think it was maybe 85, 86, 87. He sold it to uh, another company. And then uh, about seven years later, uh, that same company decided to do the unthinkable. And after 22 years of being a hit music station, whether it was rock, pop, album, rock, adult, contemporary, light rock, whatever you want to call it, in 1990, September 1992, KDQ, without any warning whatsoever, went into Paul Harvey at 12 noon. The last song they played was a Gloria Estefan song coming out of Paul Harvey. At about 20 after 12, they played Garth Brooks two of a kind working on a full house. <laughs> Quite a sharp contrast there. <laughs> poor, poor lady, our, our receptionist, she was just bombarded with angry calls saying, what is this I'm hearing and when is it going to end? <laughs> and we spent the whole day telling people that, you know, it's, we're country now. Yep, it's the new KDQ now. <laughs> so y'all was the most drastic format change I think I ever experienced, but it paid off. Oh man, did it pay off! Oh, it's oh. it's been a wildly successful country station all these years. But, but we we had to work. I tell you what, we had to work. We we had to work ourselves to death to make that happen. I know that 
We had billboards all over the tri-state. We went out and did two, three, four remotes a day all over western Kentucky, all over southern Illinois, all over southern Indiana with that rabbit. And that oh, rabbit yeah. became more popular than Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny combined. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. And um, it, was, it was ginormous. So y'all had no clue about the format change the day before. I did not know what they were going to do until almost when it happened. <laughs> almost that moment. In, I was working briefly in Wilmington, North Carolina for about three or four or five months. Didn't like it. Wanted to come back home. Uh, KDQ found out about it. They had this format change in mind and bringing me back and having my all my success in history and country radio, they just felt like, oh man, the timing, the timing is right to do this thing. So uh, they brought me back, and for six months, we kept the same format, adult contemporary opening space. And then in September, uh, boom, <laughs> we changed it, and it, no, nobody knew this was going to happen. It was, it was just incredible. <laughs> totally just a complete surprise. Well, it, it definitely paid off, like you said. And, uh, <laughs> Ever. <laughs> now, um, was, um, was Wing your first – full-time radio job, WYNG? WYNG was my first full-time job. I came on board there in, I think, late 1982. The program director at that time was a guy that I knew real well, and he needed a weekend guy. So he he hired me. I said, it's been a few years, and I've you know, done this thing. So here we are. All right. So he put me on weekends, and, and then the next thing I knew, I had a full-time shift in about six months. Went to middays, and then, well, I guess maybe a year later, the morning show. There you go, which was by far the most fun, no doubt, I'm we, sure. We, uh, we took a, a morning show that was okay and turned it into a zoo. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we had a cast of like 20 different characters, plus, you know, a news guy, a sports guy. Our sports guy was as warped as could be. Uh, he would do crazy multiple-choice quizzes on the air. He'd play a sports voice like a Pete Rose or someone. He said, all right, name that voice. A, Pete Rose, B, uh, some terrorist name or whatever. And then, you know, C, C uh, uh, Jack Benny or whatever. I mean, he, he was just out there, but it worked for the show. Sure. Yeah. But... And that, that was the kind of show that we had. But another thing that we did, I think, that really, really put us up there was the, the, uh, the celebrity interview. Nobody was doing this kind of stuff, and I started doing it. I started calling around to see if I could get interviews with people, and back then, nobody was doing it. And, you know, one one week we have Dick Clark on the show. The next week we have Susan Lucci of All My Children. The next week we have Vanna White, uh, Roger Ebert, the film critic. Uh, oh, gosh, I can't even begin to list all of them. Oh, goodness, and then that's that awesome. And that went along with uh, every other radio job that, that I had probably probably some 150 to 200 different people. Uh, some of them in the country music industry, but some of them were just entertainers. Ed McMahon, Bob Barker, uh, oh, Phyllis God. Diller. So <laughs> it, it was a it was a blast. And people tuned in to see, oh, you hear who's going to talk to you this morning? You hear who's going to be on the other? And they'd listen. And then that was 
that that was the kind of stuff that nobody else was doing. So, so it's uh, it, <laughs> it's actually a part, and uh, everybody else really enjoyed it. And then there was local celebrities too. I remember uh, one day on the morning show when um, when I was, I guess, about seven or eight. You uh, you woke Ron oh, Rhodes up. Me. You're killing me with this. <laughs> you're killing me. But anyway, I'll never forget you. Uh, you called and you woke Ron Rhodes up on the air. Ron Rhodes up. Woke uh, Mike Blake up. Uh, the wake-up call we did. Uh, we did that with a lot of local people. But uh, one morning, I decided to call somebody a little, little more different than the rest of them. Uh, this is in 1984. Uh-huh. The Chicago Cubs had won the National League Eastern Division for the first time in like 37 years. Right. You know, back in the old days, everybody's name, whether you were famous or not, just about everybody's name was in the phone book. It was in the directory. So I looked up Harry Carey. Oh, in there. legend. So I called, and he answered the phone. <laughs> and we did the interview. And then a few years later, uh, we did another one. And uh, it was it was a blast. Just an absolute blast. And people would say, how do you do this? How do you, how do, you do this? I said, because, because I, I take my chances and I go for it. Nobody go. else was doing it. So I, you know, we did it. <laughs> it's like, you know, they they can't hurt you over the phone, even if they are mad at you. So <laughs> today, Sam, today you got to go through all, all kinds of red tape and publicists. And oh, I know. Yeah. Email, emails and uh, uh, you, you just got to jump through a lot of hoops. And most of the time people don't like to do this kind of stuff. But back then they did. Yeah. And celebrity. And, I mean, uh, we, <laughs> celebrity we contact just about everybody <laughs> yes and celebrity contact information was a lot easier to come by back then for sure but uh, <laughs> a local show couldn't do this only if you were a big network or a big market radio morning show you could probably pull it off still but uh not uh, you know not in a little area like uh, like ours it was just uh, yeah it was, it was incredible <laughs> in the Henderson area, Henderson Evansville area today. That's uh, Larry that, King. We even called him and he talked to us. How about that? And uh, you know, we lost him not long ago. And uh, anyway, I, I have a lot of this stuff put away in my in my archives, and uh, it's fun to listen to. Tell you what, I could sit there and listen to Sam Yates all day long. Couldn't you? He's one of those people that can almost make the phone book sound pretty interesting. Now, guys and gals, at this point, we've pretty much reached halftime of my chat with Sam, but fear not, because the second half of our discussion will be here for you next week, and make sure you're here, because we've got a lot more to learn about Sam Yates. Next week, he will tell us who the very first artist was that he introduced on stage at a concert. He will also share with us his favorite interview from the country music realm, We will get an explanation as to why Country was always his favorite radio format. Sam will pass along some advice to aspiring broadcasters and podcasters. Last but not least, he will entertain us with some stories from his time spent working with another Henderson-Evansville area radio legend who a lot of you are undoubtedly familiar with, Mr. Largen in Charge, Big Bill Love. Bill and Sam worked together for a number of years, found their way into a bunch of trouble. Always found their way out. It's funny how that works. But uh, Sam gives us the scoop on all that and more next week. In the meantime, make sure you check out his 
Archives page on Facebook. That's Sam Yates Archives. Send him a request. He will add you ASAP. When he does, you will have unlimited access to all of the classic radio clips and interviews, everything that he has posted on his archives page, with plenty more to come, I'm sure. You won't be disappointed. I bet you'd be surprised at how much time you will pass listening to classic radio audio from those archives. And I tell you what, nothing goes better with listening to uh, classic radio on the Sam Yates archives page than an ice-cold craft brew. And here now in our Tourist Temptation Spotlight, we're going to take you to the perfect place to snag just that. It's yet another Blabbing in the Bluegrass Tourist Temptation. Today we are featuring a Louisville landmark that has really spiced up the uh, local brewery scene, shall we say, with many one-of-a-kind craft beers. And not only is it a great place to enjoy a cold one, but it's also a great place to enjoy fine dining and a number of truly spectacular menu options. So here to fill us in on all those goodies is the uh, owner slash brewmaster. He holds a number of different hats, but let's hear it for Adam Watson. Hello, hello, hello. Hail and well met, humans. <laughs> we are sure glad you're here, sir, and Tickle Pink that you uh, were able to lend us some of your time. Is this the first podcast you've done, Adam? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm, I've sprinkled myself all over the audio globe. Look at you. I've done just enough that I'm no longer horrified by the sound of my own voice on the internet. <laughs> oh, no reason to be horrified. Your, your <laughs> voice sounds great. Well, hopefully this is the uh, hopefully this is your favorite podcast that you'll do. So <laughs> we'll do our best to make it not seem like work. Now, uh, Adam, the fascinating history of Against the Grain dates all the way back, well, not long ago, to 2011, so about a decade or so. So uh, why don't you explain what sparked your desire and inspiration to open Louisville's first brewer-owned brewery back in 2011? Sure, yeah. I mean, for us, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but, uh, you know, frankly, there there was not too much of a brewing scene at that point. There were a couple breweries scattered all around the state, but uh, I think we were maybe the seventh to open at that point, and, and we're up in the 90s now. So uh, so we, we were definitely still pretty early on, even though 10 years doesn't seem like a long time ago. Uh, we, we opened our doors in October of 2011. Um, our first spot was there at Slugger Field, uh, where we, we did brew on site and, uh, and operated a full barn restaurant. Um, since then, we have, we have added a number of locations and, uh, and kind of continued growing. You know, at, at the time, our thoughts were just that, uh, you know, we, we had been working at, a, at another brewery in town and had kind of gotten together and said, you know, if, if we're going to work this hard, we may as well try and do it for ourselves. Sure. Uh, so we kind of adventured off and, and did it on our own. And there, there are four of us, myself, uh, and my three partners, Andrew, Sam, and Jerry. And uh, we were all brewers. Uh, we were the first brewer-owned brewer brewery, although I will point out that uh, quite a few more have opened up since then. Gotcha. But, uh, you know, I, I think we just decided that, that we had a pretty broad skill set amongst the four of us. And we got along and knew we worked pretty well in a brewery setting together. So we figured uh, – we're young enough and dumb enough. We might as well give it a try. <laughs> there you go. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, though. And like you said, I'm sure 
these past 10 years have felt maybe more like one or two. I read in your <laughs> article about the, the history of the company that uh, showers were hard to come by those first few years. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh it, it's been a it's been a long strange trip and it's uh, it's not getting any less strange by the day it seems. But uh I mean, yeah, it, it goes by in a flash. It's one of those weird temporal anomalies. It's gone by in a flash, but uh it's it also feels like we've been we've been doing stuff forever. You know, I I I'm engaged in a an ongoing experiment of subjectively dilating my life to infinity by just <laughs> creating as many odd memorable moments as possible and uh uh, owning and operating a brewery has certainly afforded me the opportunity to fill my life with odd moments that uh, that really stick in the memory. Well, that's what I'm talking about, and um, you're gonna you're gonna bless us with a book about them one of these days, right? Hey, who knows? Maybe <laughs> I'll be glad to help you promote that. In fact, I'll be one of the first to read it. So, anyhow, Adam. Now, uh, when did you first develop uh, an interest in craft beer, and um, how did you acquire the skills? needed to become a brewmaster? Well, um, I mean, I guess off the, off the bat, I'm not sure I'd define myself as a brewmaster. I'm certainly, a, I, I, I think I'd classify myself as an adept brewer, but uh, I don't know. There's, there's no paperwork for being a, a brewmaster. You don't get a, a diploma or anything. It's kind of a, a pretty subjective name. But, uh, but anyway, I, so I was, living, uh, I was living down in North Carolina while my wife was getting her first master's at Wake Forest. Oh, and uh, I, I kind of had nothing to do and filled my time uh, poking around at one of the local craft beer shops. And, uh, you know, just started to de develop an affection for some of the, uh, the craftier products. Not that, not that the world was full of craft products at the time, but they had some good imports and things like that. And, uh, and I kind of thought to myself, you know, I enjoy cooking. Maybe I'll enjoy brewing too. So uh, they, they also had a little homebrew shop attached to their bottle shop and I bought myself a, a basic kit and there on a, on an induction stove in a tiny kitchen in a North Carolina apartment, uh, I, I brewed my first few batches. They were nothing to write home about, but it was enough to, to start learning the process. You had to start somewhere. Yeah. And uh, I went to law school here in Louisville, ultimately decided not to pursue that as a, a long-term profession, but I worked my way through law school by uh, picking up a, a kind of brewery assistant job at a local brew pub. And uh, that's where I learned most of my practical hands-on skills. Um, by the time I had passed the bar, I'd moved up to a full-time brewing position, just kind of had to pick one or the other to be a lawyer or be a brewer. And uh, very few of my lawyer friends seemed happy with life, but most of my brewer friends did. So I gave that a go. See, and, and look, actually, you're familiar with both kinds of bars too. So. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. <laughs> you know, law school and beer, craft beer making certainly is a, a winning combination. Now, um, what are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned, Adam, from uh, brewery ownership and operation over the past decade? Uh, my answer to this is going to be a little dependent. What's the, uh, what's the child-friendly nature of this podcast? <laughs> oh, we, we try to keep it PG, I guess you'd okay. say. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, in that case, I'll phrase it as uh, care about everything. Um, you, go. <laughs> you know, the, the, I think the, the thing I've learned most is that uh, it can be so easy to decide that uh, because you care so much about one little part of your business, that some other parts uh, don't deserve your attention. And it's, uh, that's just 
patently untrue. You know, thankfully we're in a position where we've got four owners and we can kind of spread our attention out over a number of topics and, and kind of devote ourselves to, uh, to, to learning different roles and growing in them. But, uh, you got to care about everything. You know, you can't just write anything off as, as an unimportant element of your business, especially in a business like brewing that reaches so many different sectors. You know, we're manufacturing and retail and distribution and do our own marketing and sales. And there's art involved and there's, you know, customer, <laughs> customer service involved. And then you've got all the, all the normal business stuff like HR and banking and financing and insurance and all that stuff. So you can't just let anything fall by the wayside. You've got to, you got to care about everything. Yeah. You dabble in a little bit of everything and <laughs> it's the passion that drives you. I know. So <laughs> yeah, you can be passionate about the liquid and that's a great thing, but uh, there's just so much more to it. Yeah. And you do have to be passionate about the liquid, but you gotta, you gotta be passionate about everything else too. So <laughs> yeah. it all kind of comes with the territory. Now, for craft beer connoisseurs who have not yet tasted against the grain, Adam, how would you describe this innovative and exciting brew, sir? Well, so, you know, we, uh, we make a huge variety of different liquids. So, uh, it, on, on the whole, I think our bent is uh, towards experimental and, and bold, but that can take a lot of different forms. Um, you know, we've just in the first, I think in the first 12 months, we made something like 68 beers, uh, different beers, different recipes. Uh, and we've continued to stay with that kind of experimental bent. We've settled on a few flagships in terms of our canning, but uh, you know, we, we make a lot of different stuff. So I can't really talk about one particular liquid uh, as, you know, and describe that as against the grains beer. But I think on the whole, what we try and do is, is stay experimental, stay interesting. Uh, you know, we've always stuck with the philosophy that if we bore ourselves, we're clearly going to bore our drinkers. So we try and make beer that, uh, that makes us excited. And, and sometimes that's remaking something we've already made. And sometimes that's going back to the drawing board and coming up with something brand new. There you go. So <laughs> you try to find brews that excite you and excite the uh, current and prospective fans, which is <laughs> not a bad philosophy. Now you were talking about all of the the different craft beers that uh, you've created throughout your experimentation, which leads us to our next item here. You know, I find it interesting that uh, the amazing assortment of beers crafted by Against the Grain are grouped into uh, six contrasting categories. And if you would, Adam, I'd like for you to give us a little description of each of the following categories. So we'll start with session. Sure. So, uh, you know, the reason, I guess, to start off, the reason we made those categories is we wanted to make sure that there was always an interesting array of things. We kind of, we didn't like it when we walked into a brew pub and there were just like 12 IPAs on tap. Uh, we wanted to make sure there was always kind of a, a broad palette. So that's why we use these six categories. And for us, uh, you know, session has some different definitions depending on where you are across the world. But for us, session just means uh, anything that's 5% or below in terms of alcohol so okay. that you have, uh, so you can sit and, and, and enjoy several of them, have a drinking session without uh, necessarily uh, experiencing extraordinarily altered effects. I tell you what, the older I get, the more I appreciate that session category too. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. It gives you more wiggle room and you don't have to worry about the uh, potential consequences. Yeah. Another good yeah. thing about these categories too, is it helps people to sort of, determine um, 
which brew they might like best or which may suit them best. So yeah, absolutely. They serve a meaningful purpose to say the least. Now let's <laughs> talk about those beers in the hop category. So hop is, uh, is, is kind of self-descriptive. You know, hops are one of the key ingredients to beer and especially in craft beer have kind of taken on a central role in terms of the flavor profiles. So uh, our, our hop character is the hopster, uh, dude with, uh, with hop cones for mustache parts. Um, and it's, it, you know, it, it encompasses in general brands like IPAs and double IPAs, pale ales, but there are also some, you know, some particularly hoppy pilsners that have found their way in there over time. Uh, I think once we had a, an extra special bitter that lived in there because we felt uh, it was just a pretty hoppy brew. So uh, any, any beer that, uh, that features the, the hop ingredient as its primary flavor profile can, can wedge into that category. There you go. So if you partake in a, a hop brew, then Mr. Hopster will love you forever. But yeah. <laughs> he won't hold it against you if you choose one of uh, the other. A big happy family. You can go wherever you like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mr. Hopster's always happy for his cousins and aunts and uncles, shall we say. Everybody else in the Against the Grain family. Yep. So uh, let's move on now to the next category in the... Uh, against the grain beer department, which is the whim. So whim was always intended to be kind of our catch-all uh, for bizarre experiments that didn't necessarily fit squarely into one of those other categories. Uh, so it's, it's seen some, every now and again, it sees a normal beer, but a lot of times it sees something really experimental. You know, we did a, we did a long series of collaborations with some local chefs. So we brought together some culinary ingredients that aren't commonly used in beer, and a lot of those ended up in the whim category. Uh, but it's meant to be just sort of a, a very protean kind of uh, shifting place to put things that, uh, that don't necessarily have a home elsewhere. Yeah, like you're going out on a whim. So yeah. you know, when, you, when you sample a beer from the whim category, you know, ha have an open mind. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not afraid to venture off the beaten path so you shouldn't be either sure. now um, the next category we're halfway home here we got three <laughs> more to discuss and this would be the malt category sure so malt is again you know the two two primary flavor contributors uh aside from the yeast obviously the two primary flavor contributors are the malt profile and the hop profile so uh beers that end up a lot more malt forward end up in this category and that's Usually things like uh, like English milds, uh, brown ales, uh, some barley wines, depending on on how you focus the ingredients. But uh, you know, I, I think a lot of times hops get the uh, the glory in the craft beer industry. Uh, but for me, there's there's got to be a good malt backbone uh, to carry any good beer. Hops aren't worth a darn if you're not laying them on top of a good foundation. And for me, that's malt. Right. <laughs> Malt's where it all starts. Yep. Now, our uh, second to last category, let's hit for a second on those dark brews. Sure. So dark is the only one that's uh, actually a color descriptor rather than a, than a flavor. Right. Um, so it, it, you know, although you can have a pretty broad array of flavors that still come, ac come across as dark in the glass, uh, we found that enough people in the common lingo uh, 
said, you know, I'm a fan of dark beer or I'm not a fan of dark beer. So we just wanted to make sure that uh, that, that was represented always. You know, you find things like porters and stouts and Schwartz beers uh, in this category. And, um, you know, we've, we've kind of elected a, a bit more of a mysterious and strange character that re- represents and personifies this. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen all, all the characters. If you haven't, I, I highly recommend you go to the website and look up the bios for each of these characters that personify the categories but this dude has a has a skull you know skull mask on and can uh, often be seen carrying around a pistol uh he's a a shady dude that you don't want to mess with in a back alley (laughs) yeah yeah atgbrewery.com is that website and if you're uh looking to investigate these categories in depth you will see these characters and (laughs) you will definitely be highly entertained now we can't uh we can't talk about against the grain brewery without talking about your smoky brews. So yeah, I'm kind of glad you saved this one for last. It's uh, it's potentially my favorite category, um, and it's the one that when we first opened, a lot of people in in the know in the beer world told us you will never ever sell anything in the smoke category. And, you know, smoke was uh, was a, a niche type of beer that you find every now and again. You know, uh, most seasoned beer drinkers have heard of uh, Schlinkerla from uh, Bamberg, Germany, and, and that's kind of about it in, in terms of smoked beers for most people. Uh, but it turned out the four of us, one of the things we had in common was a, a deep affection for, for smoked beers, both Schlinkerla, but also some of the other budding craft beers that were using smoked malt as part of their flavor profile. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that there's always a smoked beer on. Again, mostly just to entertain us, but, uh, but I'm glad that our smoked beers have, have garnered enough um attention and bravado that that people seek them out to you know things like our bow and luke fall into this category uh although we've done a a handful of other interesting rauk beers and smoked you know you can smoke basically anything you just smoke the malt and that's an ingredient in the beer so you can make a smoked version of nearly anything if you if you've got the chutzpah to do it uh so yeah we've we've put a variety of beers in here over the years uh and and i've really enjoyed Pretty much all of them. Absolutely, and I'm I'm sure that uh, a lot of your former smoky beer naysayers have come around and <laughs> seen the light. Of yeah, that. yeah. We've got a buddy who runs a bar up in Chicago, and every time he came down to visit us, we'd tell him about what we sold in that category, and he was just blown away. He said he had he could never sell a smoked beer in his in his bar. Uh, although, lo and behold, he's had our our Bo and Luke on a few times, and it seems to have gone all right. So yeah. <laughs> that's not surprising so he just he just needs to keep against the grain around and he'll be okay i agree (laughs) your lips to his ears Uh, indeed indeed let's hope now uh, of the countless craft beer creations that against the grain has to offer talk about those which seem to be your most requested and explain what makes them so popular in your mind adam so in in terms of of highest volume most requested uh it, it's it's tough to to not say citra ass down our double ipa using citra hops uh that's definitely our highest seller and that's the one that that moves a lot out in the marketplace you know we sell a ton of cans of that and we sell uh kegs in places that still use kegs right now but we we have always moved a lot of that both on site and off uh and it is definitely one of the the highest quality beers that we make just in the in the sense that we've paid a lot of attention to it over the years and we've fine-tuned it a great deal and I mean the name Citrass Down certainly seems 
to grab people, but then yeah. the, uh, the liquid in the glass or in the can uh, backs it up too. It's a very, it's a phenomenal beer if you're into hoppy styles. Uh, so that's our highest seller and that's definitely the most sought after, but we've been lucky enough to have a handful of beers that have developed uh, strange sort of cult-like followings. You know, Bo, Bo and Luke is easy to point to. That's our, our big smoked imperial barrel-aged bourbon-inspired adjunct heavy monstrous stout. Uh, and, you know, we, up until the pandemic hit, we had a big old party for that every year uh, for, you know, we'd only release it once a year, um, do a few variants and things. And that, that absolutely had a cult following. Uh, but we've also had a few beers every now and again that, you know, we, we don't always rebrew when we brew things. So uh, people latch onto things and I end up having like that one guy who comes by the bar and every time he does asks us about that barley wine we did six years ago. <laughs> Keeps hoping you'll bring it back. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's going through barley wine withdrawals. Well, let me just say that of all the beer names that I've heard in my short 32 years of life, that six your ass down has to be the grand champion. <laughs> That's a good one. You know, we, we, uh, we sit around and throw names at each other quite a lot and some of them work and some of them don't, but, uh, yeah. Again, we have to keep ourselves entertained, right? So, exactly. Uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're big fans of juvenile humor. We like to do potty jokes as often as we can. So, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure plenty of people set their ass down to drink that beer too. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how appropriately named is that? That's, now, that's always a big hit when I take it out to festivals and things. People seem like, oh, I don't know if I can say the name of that beer. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I can imagine. And then they don't regret, uh, they don't regret sampling it, I know. Absolutely now, um, no doubt it's a, a tough call, Adam, but if you had to choose a personal favorite from Against the Grains beer department, uh, which one would it be? And explain what makes this brew tops in your book. So that's a lot like trying to pick a favorite kid, but having three kids has taught me you can, in fact, pick a favorite kid most times. It is usually possible. <laughs> uh, Although, although it changes from moment to moment, right? So, um, sure, it, it's very, it's very kind of uh, attitude dependent. The situation and my mindset and the time of year, you know, these things all impact what I want at any given moment. But I think one, I think our one beer that I have uh, the the most kind of consistent love for is probably the Brown Note. It's a it's a relatively simple, straightforward brown ale that we make, but. Uh, it's uh, it's extraordinarily flavorful. Uh, you know, brown ale is is not really a sexy category. You know, craft craft beer drinkers don't go raving about the the brown ale they had, but uh, it's it's always a a, a a a beer style that's been important to me and and had a, a special place in my heart. And every time I go a, a few months without having one of those, I go back to it and kind of rediscover how much I love the brown note. So that's sort of your standard <laughs> appropriate for any time of year. And if you, if you go too long without one, you know, you start <laughs> experiencing withdrawal. So I'll, yeah. I'll come back and I'll ask you in October, Adam, what your favorite is and I'll see if I get a different <laughs> response from you. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always, you know, pool boys great when you're on the lake and 35 yeah. K is great when it's cold outside, but Brown notes the, the kind of all around champion for me. Yeah, anyway. there's weather conditions and life circumstances. That's that sort of helps dictate what you drink too. So I understand yeah. that. Absolutely. Now we'll switch to the eats because in addition to a 
banging beer selection. Patrons can also relax and enjoy lunch and dinner options that are second to none. It's not called Against the Grain Brewery and Smokehouse for nothing. So before we yep. discuss main courses, Adam, why don't you enlighten us on the awesome appetizers that we can devour before diving into an entree? Well, I, I, I do want to a little bit kind of uh, approach that sideways talking about our places. You know, as, as uh, all, all of your listeners, I presume, know the last 13 months have been rather strange for places that purvey oh, yes. food to people. Um, so we, our, our primary smokehouse restaurant has been largely furloughed. Uh, we're working on reopening it right now, but it's been closed for a good long while. Uh, but we have kept operating uh, our public house in the Highlands neighborhood. Uh, and we just recently uh, signed a lease on a new space over on 7th Street. Okay. So with, with any luck, uh, within a few months, once we've got the 7th Street space up and going, and if we can manage to get Slugger Field reopened pretty, pretty soon here, uh, we'll actually have three different restaurants all rolling at the same time. And they all operate on kind of different concepts. You know, the public house is a little bit more of a burger-oriented pub food place, and the uh, the smokehouse is obviously a barbecue and smokehouse kind of flavor. Sure. Uh, and the new joint is uh, Against the Grain Sandwich Emporium, and I think the name kind of conveys what's going to be going on there. Yeah, but, lots uh, of sandwiches. In in terms of the the like the big tourist draw, you know, traditionally what's happened at the smokehouse. Uh, I, I think my favorite appetizer there has always been our our smokehouse uh, nachos which have undergone a few permutations and changes over the years, but uh, have always been a, a constant favorite of mine. Since each restaurant has a little different theme, we'll kind of uh, approach this in a unique fashion here, because it goes without saying that your craft beer concoctions perfectly complement any of your um, mouth-watering menu options. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about your biggest fan favorites at each of these places. And, um, Let's start with the smokehouse. So tell us what we can look forward to when the when the smokehouse reopens. So the big star at the smokehouse has always been the, the pork sandwich. Uh, for a while, it was a pulled pork sandwich, and we transitioned it to a, a chopped pork sandwich because we felt like it just ended up with a better flavor. I realize the name pulled pork seems to uh, evoke a lot of things for people, but uh, when we when we started doing the chopping, we found we actually came up with a better product. So the chopped pork sandwich is, uh, is incredible. I, I just had to stop myself from using a non-PG word there. I like it so much. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, down, at, down at Public House, uh, the classic is the Dirty Burger, although I often find myself going for the, uh, the Dirty Vegan, the vegan version of it. We use those Beyond Meat patties, uh, and it, it's it's delightful. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a vegan or anything, but uh, I, I definitely enjoy that sandwich a great deal. Um, if a non-vegan, if a non-vegan can enjoy a, a vegetarian sandwich, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It certainly helps. Uh, so, so both the dirty burger and the dirty vegan are, are great choices if you find yourself at the smokehouse. Uh, and as far as the sandwich emporium goes, uh, we're still working on a menu there, so uh, I'm I'm not sure I even have any secrets to divulge at this point. That's uh, oh, gotcha. we're still hammering out the details, and and we'll we'll get them out to you as soon as we got them. Yeah, we'll keep our listeners posted, and I know those uh, those sandwich wheels are constantly spinning inside your brain. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll look, look forward to <laughs> look for a mix of of classics and oddities. That's kind of our signature. 
There you go. You got to have some sandwich whims too, in addition to yeah, the meat whims. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, there's got to be a strong mixture. Well, uh, Adam, you've been great. We've certainly enjoyed talking to you today. Now, before we let you go, in 30 seconds or less, why don't you tell us what makes Against the Grain Brewery and Smokehouse a heavenly haven for Louisvillians and vacationers to sip, dine, and unwind? Sure. So, I, you know, I think that we're the kind of place that, uh, that pays enough attention to the details that we can afford to pretend to, to not pay attention to the details. So that's kind of what's fun. You know, we, uh, we, we work hard and we play hard. So we're, we're proud enough of all the products that we put out and we know the quality is high enough that we can afford to uh, also use potty humor and that's okay. There you go. And whenever, uh, whenever we get done with the podcast portion of our conversation, you can use all the potty language that you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think, you know, irreverence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. irreverence. High quality and irreverence. That's where <laughs> I don't know how that was in relation to 30 seconds, but it was close. Well, yeah, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> close enough for us, for sure. Now, uh, tell our listeners about your Three locations, well, one upcoming, of course, but tell, tell our listeners where they can find you there in Louisville. Yeah, so the, the, the smokehouse is built into Slugger Field down on Main Street, downtown Louisville. Uh, the public house is on Bardstown Road near the intersection of Bonnie Castle uh, in the Highlands neighborhood. And the new place is on 7th Street in between Market and Main. Uh, at some point in the relatively near future, if you feel like dropping by our production brewery, we will start putting some, uh, some retail out there eventually. And that's, uh, that's down on Northwestern in the shipping port slash Portland neighborhood. Uh, nothing, nothing much to do as a visitor there yet, but at some point we'll start doing tours and, and pouring beers out there so you can come see how the proverbial sausage is made. If you want to watch the canning line, come along. Exactly. So pop in on them and, um, you know, as you continue to check, there, there may be more and more for you to enjoy when you go you check out know. that. We don't rest on our laurels. We're never done. There's always no. something else on the horizon. <laughs> always something left to be done. Now, um, what hours are you running right now? So right now at the, at the public house, which is our only open eatery at the moment, we're running from, uh, from noon to 10. Uh, although I'm pretty sure we're expanding towards midnight here as some of the, the uh, regulations or some of the restrictions start to, to ease off. Sure. So it'll be noon to midnight before too long. Uh, We'll probably have something like that at the smokehouse as soon as we reopen, and uh, and I think we're uh, we're planning on doing a little bit more late night uh, down at the Sandwich Emporium once we get going because there's also a speakeasy in the basement there, so uh, we'll be having some late night shows and we're trying to get a 4 a.m. license. See how that works. Give us that phone number where people can uh, call and touch base with you. Uh, well, you can call the, you know, the best, the best method is actually just Googling it because the phone numbers keep changing at the different places. But if you right. Google it, you can find the phone number. Uh, you can also reach out to us uh, via email. You can uh, find us at info at atgbrewery.com. We're also over all of the socials. So you can find us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, oh, yeah. You can find me personally on Twitter at atgwizardesq, atgwizardesquire. Uh, also, if you want to come hang out with me every Tuesday at four, I'm on our Instagram feed uh, doing a show I call Pandemic Pints with Adam, where uh, I basically just sit around and have a beer and, and talk about whatever's on my mind. I kind of miss sitting and having conversations at the bar during times that I can't do that. So I started doing it on the internet. There you go. Um, you don't have to worry about keeping that show PG, do you? <laughs> no, no, no. That one, 
that one borders on uh, NC-17 on occasion. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. So check out uh, Adam's show once a week. In addition to his personal Twitter, there's also at uh, ATG Brewery on Twitter. Yep. It's at uh, Against the Grain Brewery and Smokehouse on Facebook. Also at ATG Brewery on uh, Instagram. So see what they're all about and uh, partake in some of Adam and his crew's beers. And um, I know you have a co-owner named Sam, and I'm going to have to meet him because I'm always, I'm always pulling for my fellow Sams. So. That's fair. That's fair. A community of Sams is not a bad thing. Yeah, we bond and we, we help each <laughs> other out as much as possible. Well, uh, Adam, thanks so much for joining us, my friend, and we'll be sure and talk with you again sometime. Sounds great. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. And that phone number to the public house, which is currently the only against-the-grain dining establishment in operation, is 502-409-9866. Again, that's 502-409-9866. Keep your eye open for possible variations of that down the road, however, because as our man Adam pointed out, that number tends to change with little, if any, notice. But one thing that's probably not going to change, atgbrewery.com is the website, and I will link you to that in my show notes as well. So check them out. Whether your favorite is a malt or a hop or a smoke, shoot, they've got three other categories besides those to boot. So you're going to find something, at least one something, probably multiple somethings, to suit your fancy at Against the Grain with the Smokehouse, to reopen soon inside Slugger Field. Of course, the public house never closed. I'm super excited about the all-new Sandwich Emporium on the horizon, and we're certainly going to have to reconvene with our man Adam sooner than later to discuss those killer sandwiches that will for sure be on the menu. I can taste them now. But I thoroughly enjoyed visiting with Adam Watson today about the fascinating history of Louisville's Against the Grain Brewery and his unique craft brew selection. It was also an honor indeed chatting with Sam Yates, a Henderson native who enjoyed quite a storied broadcasting career at the Henderson-Evansville market. And you can sample some of that career right now on his Facebook page. That's Sam Yates Archives. If you send him a request, he will add you. And once he does... You can listen to your heart's content. And don't forget, that was just part one of my discussion with Sam today. Part two is on tap next week. And you'll want to be here because, trust me, it is equally entertaining. So mark that down on your to-do list for the upcoming week. But before we wrap this puppy up, I have the long-awaited answer to our swimsuit-themed bluegrass brain buster. And, of course, we told you that uh, Mark Spitz, the uh, swimsuit that he sported in the 1972 Olympics was produced with love right here in Kentucky. And my question to you was, in which Commonwealth community was Mark Spitz 1972 Olympic swimsuit manufactured? And your answer, Paris in Bourbon County. Yep, believe it or not, Mark Spitz 1972 Olympic swimsuit was manufactured in Paris, Kentucky. That red, white, and blue Speedo, which brought him plenty of good luck. You know, most of Mark Spitz swimming, if not all of it, was done before my time. But I never remember hearing about 
an occasion that he hit the water and didn't win a medal of some sort. So I would say that red, white, and blue Speedo served him well for sure. Made in Paris, Kentucky. That had to have brought him a little more luck. So we'll have another Bluegrass Brain Buster for you next week along with more fun, enlightening discussion in between now and then, you know how to get a hold of me. It's bluegrassblabbit at gmail.com. You can also hit me up on the Blabbit in the Bluegrass Facebook page where you'll find all of my previous episodes, additional information at different points throughout the course of the week. You can also make comments and leave messages Either way, I hear from you. I'm just glad to hear from you. So you keep those comments coming and that feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, I am open-minded to it all. And between now and when we get together again next week, you know your assignment. Keep laughing, keep smiling, and keep blabbing in the bluegrass. Because we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide, cause we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey cools your palate. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste.